how to maybe we should save the, our prayers to the end of the time. I always feel, or maybe we should start with them. I always feel like it's uh, the best Dharma teaching of the whole morning. It sort of readjusts my whole inner landscape. And this, you know, the, the, the hits of how the dimensions of suffering in the world, the things that can happen to mind and body that you don't even think about that this could happen or that could happen and it's happening. And keeping, you know, even keeping in mind that the things that happen are really not the suffering that the Buddha was talking about. The things that happen are the things that happen. And suffering is the way the mind meets the things that happen. And truly, the, the Buddha's hope for the end of suffering was not for the end of stuff happening because in a life stuff happens and you know lives are finite and things happen and uh, every once in a while you hear something that you don't expect is going to happen you get on a treadmill to work out you don't expect you're going to break some bones and be laid up for several weeks you, know, you cross the street you get in an airplane you go for a swim, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and really, the, 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 the teachings of the, uh, uh, the Dharma teaching around it is not that stuff shouldn't happen, but that when it happens, we'll have some ability to be with it and respond to it in a way that doesn't create more pain in the mind. We have the pain of the pain, and we have the pain of the struggle with the pain. So, you know, each time that we hear an account of someone who's dying in a way that doesn't make it worse, uh, actually often the, the uh, accounts that I hear from people who are hospice workers or people who accompany people at that time, uh, actually the death is not uh, an undesirable thing. One of my friends waking up from a long period of not being alert in the days prior to her passing said, oh, fooey, I thought I was gone. And now, I'm, now I'm back again, you know. I, you know uh, we want so much, you know, to hold on. But you know, it's not always an unwelcome thing. May I fall asleep and not have this anymore. But it's hard to, it's hard to get born and it's hard to die. And... Um, and if we would think about those kinds of things, I think that it would keep our eye on the ball, so to speak, about what's important. What did Don Juan call it? Uh, the petty annoyances that captivate your attention if you're not really paying attention. So here we are. What, I, what we started last week and what I said afterwards, that I said that the name of last week's class was the first of three discussions of the Metta Sutta. So today is the second of that. And we were going to go through each of the lines of it. And I want to do that, but I want to start by telling you some subsequent thoughts. This is a pre-continuation pre of um, the Metta Sutta. One of the conversations I had... Um, I want to start with this one. I had a conversation with a fellow, uh, a colleague, a teacher of mine. We were talking on the phone, and uh, this person said to me, you know, uh, we're talking about, uh, oh, maybe we were talking about the Shambhala Sun and stories and that, and this one wrote a good story, and that one wrote a good story, and it wasn't, you know, I liked your article, and you know, we were, we, my friends are wonderful uh, ex, uh, uh, in terms of sharing Dharma. And my colleague said to me, you know what, though, uh, I'm, I'm actually masking the gender of this person. This person said to me, uh, I, was in a, I was in a bookstore this week, and I was looking through books, and everybody's written such great things. And then I picked up a copy of the Dharmapada, and this person said, that was really great. You know, something about reading original Dharma, and, and they said... Um, you know, I don't know if it's um, 
you know, it's not that it's better than, but somehow it seems so weighty. And I was thinking about that in terms of the metta sutta, you know, that in, in one sense, uh, it really is an exposition of, an overview of the whole of the Dharma of the, that the Buddha taught, the perfection of virtue, the learning to work with states of mind, and the arising of wisdom in the mind, which are really the three components uh, of, of, uh, of how the Buddha laid out. This is the path, the perfection of ethics and morals and goodness. And this is the way of learning to work with habits of mind. And this is the understanding that people have if they do that. The last line of the sutta is not born again into this world. I, I don't read that as uh, doesn't have a, a subsequent life. As much as I hope that Bert is somewhere in greener pastures having that, I don't know about what happens after this life. But I, I do know that I am reborn into suffering frequently in this life. Each time I get caught in a story that uh, either I make up and isn't true, but I'm worried about something that will happen, or something does happen and I make a story, this is catastrophic, when the story actually is, this is happening, what should I do now? That there's, there's always other ways of approaching the moments. I'm born into suffering a lot. There are, it is wonderful to read, um, and maybe it's because we read the Metta Sutta and we have that um, extra thing that we put on it that uh, this is what the Buddha said. This is the Dhammapada is what the Buddha said. If you speak or act with a calm and bright, calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you as the wheel of a cart, the track of the ox that pulls it. What arises is preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. He insulted me, he hit me, he beat me, he robbed me. For those who brood on this, hostility is never stilled. He insulted me, he hit me, he beat me, who robbed me. For those who don't brood on this, hostility is stilled. Hostilities aren't stilled through hostility. Hostilities are stilled through non-hostility. This an unending truth. Unlike those who don't re realize that we're here on the edge of, on the verge of perishing. Those who do realize their quarrels are stilled. This is one particular translation of it. That last verse is the same as uh, anyone who ha ceases anyone who really appreciates impermanence ceases to be contentious. If you realize we have a very short time here, really, and things are, experiences are very short, and they're constantly changing, and getting caught in contention with one of them is what suffering is. I remember some, hearing some... Uh, piece of family gossip about me and I said to my one of my daughters I said you know so and so said da, da, da. you think I should get upset about this and she said well you can mom if you want to but you know but it's 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 really you know if I say the Buddha said it oh if I say that my next door neighbor said it or my daughter said it but you know not to be frivolous about it but seeing things as they are not making more of it but making something of it and making sure that we see everything. This was one particular thing that I meant to talk about last week, half talked about, and want to finish talking about how to do this first. This is the book by Kehinde Wiley that I talked about last week. Kehinde Wiley is a contemporary, 39-year-old, actually young, painter, artist, sculptor, artist in glass, with a vast, with a vast amount of, uh, let me see what I, what's a big one that I can show you that will show, a vast, um, a, 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 what do you call it, an oeuvre, a compendium, collection, 
tremendous amount of work that he's done, uh, using as his subjects people who are black. And I talked about it last week in terms of, uh, I'd been to the Brooklyn Museum the week before, and this is the, the show that's currently there. And it's a tremendous show of, of his collective works. And there are stained glass windows, and there are bronze statues, and there are enormous paintings in the style of what we've come to think of as Western European art of uh, the last five or six centuries, that uh, one of the themes coming through all of his decision to paint contemporary-looking people with dark skin in the, in the um, context of what the background or the situation is in Western art, is he says, we don't, no we don't notice that they're not there. That, that, and the bigger question with that is we don't notice. We don't notice the situation. Yesterday, so I brought it to show it to you. Each of these, you pass it around, and maybe you'll be interested in looking at it. You can probably, you can buy it from the Brooklyn Museum online. But if you look through it, the, one of the things that he did with each of his subjects, he went all over the world, set up temporary studios and all, play, all, all over the world, and picked out people that he wanted to paint because they looked particularly beautiful. Then, along with these people, they looked at the history of Western art, uh, sculpture, glass windows, in paintings, and said, in which, which one of these would you like to have your painting in or be reminiscent of? And so you'll recognize it as you go through. Actually, they show you on each page what the painting or artwork is that uh, is, the, is the theme that's been selected. But the biggest point, I think, that he's making is uh, that until he's made this opus of work, and until you think about it, uh, you don't think about what's missing in Western art. You just look at the Western art. You don't think about what's missing. Yesterday's New York Times, uh, on the front page, said one and a half million black men missing from daily life. Did you see this in yesterday's paper? In New York, almost 120,000 black men between the ages of 25 and 54 are missing from everyday life. In Chicago, 45,000 are. 30,000 are missing in Philadelphia. Across the South, from North Carolina, South Carolina, through Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, and up into Ferguson, Missouri, hundreds of thousands are missing. They are missing largely because of early deaths or because they are behind bars. Remarkably, black women who are 25 to 54 are not, and not in jail outnumber black men in that category by one and a half million. The upshot in the New York, according to an, uh, an analysis, for every hundred black women in this age group living outside of jail, there are only 83 black men. Among whites, the equivalent number is 99, nearly parity. So the whole rest of the article, you can look it up online. It's yesterday, April 25th, in the New York Times. The whole rest of the article is now, since Ferguson, maybe, and since before that, since... Um, What's his name? Um, Trayvon, Martin. Trayvon Martin. I'm sorry about forgetting the name. Since Trayvon Martin, and then since Ferguson, and then since Staten Island, and now since Baltimore, all of a sudden it's a lot in the news. So all of a sudden we are seeing black men not in society and, yes, in jail. And all of a sudden... Who knows what's going Well, I, I, I'd like to think that what's going to happen is the number of police departments uh, that I read about daily having big reviews and reorganizing themselves 
and reorganizing their hiring standards and having different, um, different expectations is starting to change because something has been brought into the light. The acquisition of cameras is one of the things that's going to do it. But I think the acquisition of cameras is going to happen because of public consciousness. Mm -hmm. I read this in the paper yesterday. I think, whoa. You know, and so I, I, I wanted to tell you in a dharmic, in, and to put it a little bit in a dharma context so it's not just my view on what's happening in the news, is that when I started to practice, and uh, Vipassana meditation, mindfulness meditation, was called insight meditation. And uh, my teachers used to do uh, a standard kind of talk, which I learned by heart because I heard the same talk so many times. Oh, I hope they're not listening to this tape. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a standard tape, so that's a, I mean, it's a standard talk. They said, this is insight, and insight means... Ah, you suddenly get something that you didn't know. In the 50s, when people were first beginning to talk about depth psychoanalysis or psychology, depth psychology, they would talk about the arising of insight. Ah, I suddenly realized that I avoid these kinds of situations because of that, and this reminded me of that. And the first things, uh, the, 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 in that particular talk, they would say there are levels of insight. And the first level was insight about one's body. As you sat uh, this morning, perhaps, uh, maybe you thought something about, uh, I should, maybe you had an awareness of, I wish I'd eaten breakfast this morning. I'm hungry sitting here. Or I'm cold. I wish I'd put on a sweater. And then maybe you thought a little bit after that, you know, I really don't take good enough care of my body. And I wish I'd gone to sleep earlier last night. I'd be a little bit more awake. And uh, I, I'm not saying this to say it's just insight about uh, disagreeable things, but insight about those kinds of things where they might be, they might tend in the direction of having a freer life, or maybe a life that you were more thoughtful about uh, yeah, having breakfast before you came or going to sleep earlier or uh, taking care of your body and bringing a sweater. Or maybe you had the thought, it's such a pleasure to just relax the mind. Look how much better my body feels. My muscles feel relaxed. The pain in my back has gone away. So it's not only that we have insight into the disagreeable aspects of the moment, but we have insights into all the aspects of the moment. And we can learn from all of them. And then they would say, okay, here's that. And of course, if you habits that one has about bringing attention to the breath and then finding one is wheezing and thinking, oh, really, I, I have to do something about, uh, I really shouldn't be continuing to smoke, but nobody is smoking anymore, I hope. But some people, unfortunately, are. Anyway, leaving that... The second area of insight was what we used to think about as insight in psychology in the 50s. Aha, I realize that it's because my father always said, you'll never amount to much, that I always am of an overachiever because I'm trying to show him, even if he's long gone, that I will amount to much. People have sometimes repressed memories and sometimes not repressed memories. My teacher told me never sing in a group because I can't, carry the tune with us. I haven't sung. My kindergarten teacher said, you mouth the words. So since then, I haven't sang along with anything. No, no, but I mean, people have that. Anybody had that? Mouth the words? There. I'm not making it up. <laughs> people say something, and then it makes a dent on you. Uh, a, a friend of mine um, on long retreat here said one day she was walking to towards the meditation hall, and you know it has glass doors, of course. She said, I saw an image of myself, as you do, coming into the glass door, and I heard a voice in my mind say, I do not have bowed legs. And from, who knows, 40 years before, her mother had made comments about the shape of her legs that had, in a subconscious way, lodged in her mind, along with many other comments of how unattractive she was, and uh, when she told me about it afterwards, she said, they, you know, I am so happy to tell you that 
my mother long gone is no longer directing my inner uh, impressions of myself. She said, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age, but I'm an attractive woman of that age. I look fine. But so many times we get insights into things and they are psychological insights or I think this or I avoid this or... I'll tell you one that, that's a psychological, spiritual one in a minute because of a particular point I want to make. But the third level of insight in that chart, I have a chart that I made out of it, were, were the three um, uh, marks of experience that we, they, were, the Buddha taught that uh, the understanding is if you really got it about impermanence, that everything is a fleeting experience, you know, the, the, there's a line from the Diamond Sutta, thus shall, you, thus shall you speak of all this fleeting life, uh, a bubble rising in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer storm, a falling star, a phantom, and a dream. I like that a lot. Somebody was just teaching me, I can't remember, I think it was Chief Seattle who said... Um, talking about the, the momentariness of something. It was a Native American teacher who said that experience is like the breath of the buffalo in wintertime. I love that. You think about the breath of the buffalo in wintertime, it's out and it's gone, and it's out and it's gone. And that, if I remember, you know, we only have... My mother said to me one day when I was an adolescent having a disagreeable day about something. She said, you know, you're only going to have this day once. And I thought, ah. Uh, <laughs> because I actually, I, I had quite sweet parents, and they very seldom found fault with me. They were not very critical people, and there wasn't even a criticism. It was just a philosophical point. <laughs> but I really, I, I heard that, ah. I remember it till now, and it's like 60 years later. And she's right. You're only going to have this day left. That, that particular insight about uh, temporality, the insight about suffering being the result of not being able to accommodate the truth of this moment's experience as it arises, that's what suffering is. You say, this is what's happening. I'm, I, I really hoped it wouldn't. It's really painful. I wish it weren't here, but it is. It's not fighting with it. That's the truth of the moment. And fighting with it. Rail, rail, what is it? Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Uh, but I decided early. That's Dylan Thomas, uh, to his father dying. And I read that as a young girl. I had someone uh, recite it to me. And I read it, went back and looked it up, and I thought, I don't want to do that rage. And the third, about everything being the cause of everything and the effect of everything, just makes so much sense to me that I sit here and my life continues by the fact that the whole world is breathing into me, and I am who I am at this moment because of everything that's happened to me, and the world is how it is, and we're all breathing because there's still enough green in the world, and if there isn't, We'll stop. Everything really is interconnected. The reason I want to tell you that whole thing is I really want to say again and again and again that the way I heard that, uh, this is the body, this is the psyche, and this is the spiritual. In my mind, whether or not it was in the minds of my teachers, prejudiced the 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 spiritual, privileged the, the spiritual, those were the insights that were really important to have, the other ones not so important to have. And I just want to really restate that every insight is important. Every awareness of where there was something hidden that was the cause of suffering, and we don't know it now, whether it's about my body or about my relationships with people, or really, I haven't fully understood those really central truths about life. They all cause suffering, and it's all worthy of attention. It's important to me to think about that. When I think about what we didn't see, 
that reading in the New York Times last night, I thought about it last night when I read the New York Times about until someone said, you know, there are one and a half million black men missing from the streets, and I didn't know that before. That's, an, that's a tremendous insight about what I didn't see, because it's not there. And then if I go back to that wonderful uh, quote from Krishnamurti about when the mind is neither resisting nor avoiding, does, is the mind capable of perceiving what is true? I think it has to perceive what's true in order to make a difference in the world. My sense of uh, the point of spiritual practice, if this is our spiritual practice, it's, it is for me anyway, uh, the point is to see clearly enough to be able to make a difference, inspired to make a difference. When I, I said earlier today, we feel better when our, when our minds are inclined to the good because it feels good when you're wishing well to people. Uh, and you also do good when you're wishing well. It gives you energy to do it. And if really, and, and really the sense that we could change the world, we take a bodhisattva vow not to stop practicing until everything is liberated from suffering. Uh, I don't really know what uh, to end all suffering. It really means, in the, it, for me, it means to be awake enough to know what needs to be addressed. What needs to be addressed in myself that isn't seen. This, I, this is a thing I didn't see for the not seeing. I'll tell you one more not seeing, and then I really want to do the sutta together. But in the course of the week, I thought these were all things I didn't say. I, I had mentioned that I was away on Passover at uh, a couple of two Passover meals. And uh, at, at, at one of them, uh, everyone went around the table and said, uh, what Egypt are you not out of yet? You know, that, uh, that here we are. Uh, you read a part of the liturgy for that night, says we were slaves unto Pharaoh in Egypt, and we were liberated from Egypt. And everybody, the people that I know and celebrate Passover with these days, are thinking of the Egypt of the narrow spaces uh, in the mind where we get stuck. Actually, the literal word for Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim, which means a, 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 um, a tight and narrow place. So we have tight and narrow places in our minds where we get stuck. So I, we went around the table, and I had told the story, I probably told it to you, of... Um, Oh, and the question was, why do we have to keep telling the story again and again? What story have we, each of us, not learned? So we're telling each other, telling it over and over again. So I said, really, with all genuineness, uh, my husband was terribly sick two years ago when we were in Europe, and he very nearly died. And during the time that I sat with him day after day, I thought to myself, if he gets better, um, because he was in, in a coma for a long time. If he gets better, uh, I really see how dear he is to me, and I, I'm, that's so aware to me. All these petty annoyances that, that from time to time have irritated me over low these many decades, they, they're, they're going to stop bothering me because I realize those are not important. Living and dying is what's important. Now my head is screwed on right. Now I'm going to have it right. I'm finished with that delusion. And he got better, and he came home, and I began to get annoyed again about those same things. So I told that, uh, just seriously thinking, I have work to do, because I have to keep my mind screwed into that space of really all the time remembering immediately, this is not him. This is just a habit of my mind to relax. Clearly, you know, it fills up the whole mind in annoyance. Doesn't an annoyance fill up your whole mind? And you forget that there are... 10 billion other reasons. I would not have stayed with someone for 60 years if the only thing true about him was the petty annoyance. And somebody said later, somebody said, you know, I'm not so sure that in that moment that you were sitting there in his ICU ward uh, wishing, and she said this in a good way, I've been thinking about it. She said, I'm not so sure. I said I was free in that moment to see clearly what he really was. She said, I'm not so sure you were free. 
She said, I'm actually thinking maybe you were held in the grip of terror that he might die and that uh, an unspoken awareness in your mind, maybe that was some sort of bargain that you were making with the universe that if he gets better, I'll make myself a nicer person. Even that I don't think that there's anything that's listening to my thoughts and going to give me presents for my good thoughts. I don't think I'm thinking that. But she said that to me. She said, maybe you're actually in the terror of that moment. Because I, I would have said I wasn't terrified, I was calm, I would behaved, you know, I, did, I was. But I was on very, very high alert. I, wasn't say, I wouldn't, wouldn't say I was relaxed. So I've been thinking about that ever since. And I've, I've been thinking to myself that maybe one of the hidden agendas I haven't recognized in myself is maybe I have the idea that if I really saw clearly, I wouldn't, resp I wouldn't have a nervous system anymore. Or I, that there's some level of development where you don't get annoyed anymore. And I thought immediately of a story someone told me about, you've probably heard it before, being part of a team of four or five people 30 years ago, 35 maybe, uh, studying Dharma in India and going to see Mother Teresa. They had an appointment with Mother Teresa to film her. These are some of my friends who do video. They had an appointment. They came to the appointment with the equipment. They came to the door of her place. They indeed had an appointment, so the doorkeeper took them in and took them, opened the door in which Mother Teresa was sitting in her room or a salon or something. Said so the people who have the appointment at 4 o'clock are here. And she looked up. And here they come in, a troop of six big guys with video equipment. And clearly she didn't expect them. Either they hadn't told her or reminded her. And it said it was clear that Mother Teresa got startled. She got annoyed. And she said she got annoyed. The annoyance went over her face, clearly. And she picked it up. And they did the interview. And I thought to myself, it came in my mind just after I was mulling about maybe you weren't that all free. Maybe that all free does not involve never having a visceral response. And maybe I'm still thinking I'm going to pluck out the visceral response. And maybe that's my secret, not insight. Anyway, what does that sound like to you? Because the end of this sutta that you, we're going to come to says being freed from fixed views by not clinging to fixed views. What fixed view do I have that I need to not cling to? Anyway, does that make sense to you, or is that a ramble that didn't make sense? What do you think, Nancy? It totally makes sense. I would just, when I used to be in practice, I would talk to parents, especially the two- and three-year-olds, and especially in California, that the idea of a child with anger, the idea to expect that we never get angry, is crazy. But the idea that we can learn how to respond yeah. Yeah. The healthier response. And I saw a lot of kids that were sort of, and I, it was really triggered. One mother once said, I don't get angry, but now I'm getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that's great. You know, in case nobody heard that on the tape, uh, Nancy is a pediatrician. She's a pediatric oncologist, actually. So she has a lot of experience with people with high emotion uh, and often dying children and uh, probably could teach that a lot better than I could. But, you know, how much, how much emotion, it's a, it's a, it's a big, it's a question. Do you have that? Are you hoping to, or I, am I the only one who catches that? Is maybe that wasn't that all, that all a liberated thought. Maybe I wasn't that all free in that moment. Um, maybe it was an unconscious bargain. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to do the sutra? Have it, now, the people who were not here last week don't know what we're doing. So the people who do, everybody's got a... Um, Everybody's got a copy of the Metta Sutta. Are there more of them? Huh? Yes, I think so. Do we have more of them?
So somebody, everybody share in the meantime. I found this week also when I went home and began to work on this again in terms of what are my responses to every one of them that uh, I found a whole book that I had and, and, I, was, and I, had, I have one page for each line written out in my giant journal here so every time I have a thought I write it in there. I found a similar book that I started once several years ago. It's been on my mind to do that not because I think well, I think because I think that every one of these lines is so open to discussion, we could pick one of them and talk the whole time. Next week, I promise we are talking the whole time about every line. But let, should we read it together to begin with? I don't have one, Amara. Um, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. Go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again in this world. You'll change with it. Thanks. So, last week what we did is we said everybody can say which they think is the most important line. And we had about ten lines picked out as the most important line. And uh, then I kind of decided on behalf of all of us that every line is the most important line. And we thought we'd do them line by line. And we started with line one. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And uh, how did we end up changing that? Because I mentioned that I like not to say an imperative. I like not to say should. This is will. This is what will. By one. Huh? I, in my personal life, I say I wish, instead of I should have phoned my aunt, I wish I had phoned my aunt. In this case, it's an imperative that if somebody, somebody actually, speaking of clergy, it sounds like uh, the, 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 the kind of thing that people say, you should do this and this and this, which is frequently difficult for people to hear. Somebody give them an injunction like that rather than an invitation. So I'm thinking about, what did we say? This is what would be done. This is what could be done. This is what is done. We said this is what will happen. This is what will happen for some, is that what we said? This is what will happen? Okay, all right. Well, we, we'll come back around. But let's, let's agree on that for today. This is what will happen for those that... This is what, well, then it says, they are, 
This is what will. This is what. How about this is what is done. This is what is done. That actually is going to work out well. This is what is done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. So, should we go on to the next line or should we talk about what's the path of peace? Is it just knowing the path of peace or is it living? Who are skilled in goodness. I understand is good. Yeah. Uh, how about if we put a comma uh, by those who are skilled in goodness, comma, or, or skilled in goodness who know the path of peace. Maybe skilled in goodness means they know the path of peace. Maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's not A and B. Yeah. Skill requires a learning as well. Yeah. It's not an innate knowing. It's, it's a process of getting there. Oh, so that's a very good idea. Anthony. Andrew. 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 Thank you very much. How would you word the sentence of the grammar comes out? Right. This is what is done by those who are skilled in goodness. Uh, who have learned, who have practiced the path of peace? Have been who walk the path of peace? Who walk the path of peace? Who seek and walk the path? Who study? Who practice and walk the path of peace? How about that? Because Andrew's point about you have to practice it. You're just not. not how about we do that for starters, who, who, has, who are skilled in goodness, who practice. that he was talking about. Oh, that's skilled. Okay. All right. You're right, Roberta. This is what is done by those who practice and walk. How about that, the path of peace? Nancy. All right, so tell me the whole sentence. As it is. I would just leave it as it is. <laughs> All right, well, let's leave it for now, but let's keep in mind the skill. Everybody think about it. Let's do the, because I thought about the next one, and I thought particularly about that everything is a translation. Who knows what, how this sounds in Pali, and I, and there, just as I read you the Dhammapada, and I, as I was reading it, I know... I am more familiar with one than at least two other translations of that. So these are all translations. But let's assume that this is a translation. What would you put in the place of able and upright? Everybody translated. How does able and upright ring in your body? Well, let's assume we, were, we got up to the path of peace for now. Then it says, let them be able and upright. I like it, but I also like the decision of doing it. You know, it's like, it's not a hope for these people. It's decide to be able and upright. Oh, all right. So since we... It's the decision. Yeah. Well, there you are. So that we the let you let them be. Is, let them decide. No, no. But how about that? Andrew's point there is this is what's going to happen. They will be able and upright. You know that because the first line was, this is what is done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. They are able and upright. Okay, unless you like other words. Um, that, because that's an instruction. Again, we were trying to keep away from the instruction and say this is how they'll be. <laughs> if so, they are able and upright. We, you know, we're, we're but it's not hanging on our decision. <laughs> Go ahead. I'd like to say that uh, I, 
I object to the entire proceeding we're engaged in here. This is a work of poetry. You can't alter a word in it and say, uh, let us not to the uh, difficulty of true brains and big impediment. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mark, you're entirely right. And you're entirely right. And the piece of the Dhammapada that I read you is a translation. And we are all translations. The, what we are doing now is not rewriting the Metta Sutta. I almost said God forbid, but it would be the wrong thing to say. Yeah. We are not rewriting the, Dhamma, the Metta Sutta. We are exploring what it means to us viscerally to say it. What do we understand? As Nancy is saying, what do we understand? Uh, what inspires me if I thought to myself, this is what's going to happen? I think that. This is what's going to happen if I become skilled in goodness and practice the path of peace. I will be able and upright. When I thought about that, I thought about we use the word able these days to mean physically able. Uh, and uh, I think a lot about may I be, um, may I bring my whole self well, not not this. It's not to be so oblique. When I do um, when I do meta resolves, uh, I say, uh, "May I feel protected and safe? May I feel contented and pleased? May my physical body support me with strength? May my life unfold smoothly with ease?" And I don't say the third line of that is classically, "May I be healthy." And a lot of people say, may I be healthy? I don't say that so much. I certainly would like to be healthy. But uh, may my physical body support me with ease. I like that better because I am imagining from how I know it is that uh, in the very end of my life, if I don't have an abrupt end, uh, that I will have less and less strength. So as I am bedridden, say, may my body support me to speak or to reach out my hand or to hold somebody's hand. May I be able to do something with my body as long as there's breath in my body. Or may I be able to, may, that's the able. May I be able to show up for the moment with this body as long as it's a viable body. Because able, is, I mean, as much as I like the word able or the attention to ability and disability as we use it. Or um, capable. capable, capable. That's a nice word. So keeping in mind, Mark, we're not rewriting the Metta Sutta. We're just saying, what's a word that resonates in me? So I'm, 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 I'm with that. Capable. You think anything else about upright? Okay. Just to add when we go back to that. Too. Those who, who seek the path of peace. Seek the path of peace. Okay. All right. I th I'm happy with that. And I hope you're all writing down because I may not have put all the edits. You know, I, the only thing I can think of about straightforward. Uh, uh, able and upright is um, not so much upright as straightforward, but the very next word is straightforward. Oh, upstanding, because you could be an upstanding citizen and physically disabled. Oh, there you go. That's good. I, I like that. All right. Honorable, all right, I like honorable. I'll put that down, too. We'll know, because everybody will say, no, no. Okay, let's try the next one. Let's see if we, we can do some more. Straightforward and gentle and straightforward. There's nothing about... Hmm. Straightforward is... Straightforward is straightforward, isn't it? Straightforward. 
I think it is. That's about it. Um, contented and easily satisfied. Um, humble and not conceited. Huh? Humble. Well, but tell me what you think humble is and tell me what you think. It's, it's worth talking about. What if you say, <laughs> no, because uh, I'm thinking, am I humble? Uh, no. Um, but, that's it said, but we just said these are the people who are skilled in goodness. Uh, you know, there's a certain way in which I think I'm humble. I'll tell you what the way is. Honestly, I hope this is all right. I think I'm honest about the limit. I mean, I, I get it about skilled and goodness, but um, I am all the time humbled by uh, acting on an, an idea that isn't true or uh, uh, judging. Uh, and I talk a lot about, you know, this is the way it is, and I'm not there yet. That's why I'm practicing. I don't think I'm super humble, though. What's humble? What do you think? Humility. Huh? Humility. Where you know that, that you are susceptible to exactly what everybody else is susceptible to. Just, I suppose I would not have told you about my daughter saying to me, you can get upset about it if you want, Mother. But, <laughs> but you don't have to. I do. Everybody. Not everybody. Maybe some people don't. I love that. What well, I forgot your name, Justine. Justine. That was great. That you knowing you know your place in the world. You don't. Yeah. You know, it's the opposite of grandiose, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah. It's no more fair that I was born into a school without valued education than I was born into an illiterate family. Um, yeah. So, um, just I, I think to me that's really to really be able to celebrate our strong points, but to do it in the context of it's a gift. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 very good. Thank you, Nancy. That it's a gift, and it's all it's also um, a link into that third um, characteristic of experience. <laughs> You were born into the family that you were born into for an infinite number of reasons. Most proximal, the fact that your mother and father met each other and liked each other, and their parents had values, and their parents had values, and their parents moved around the world in such a way that they managed to meet each other and have you together. That, that whatever gifts we have, when you, uh, when I, whenever I see someone who's... Uh, amazing at something, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, Joshua Bell played the violin at, at the symphony last week, and it was amazing. It's amazing, and, every, and I would look forward to it because I had previously not ever heard him in person. I, I heard him play the violin, but when you see him play the violin, it's, it's an amazing thing. It, there's no separation between him and the violin and the music and the composer and the audience, and you're completely lifted out of personhood because of that experience. And you look and you say, what a gift, you know, that not a, it's a gift. And fortunately, another piece of his gift is he was born into a family that recognized it. Sometimes I think to myself, how many people are born with gifts that they might not have known if they weren't? Every once in a while, you, especially in the voice world, Somebody is discovered singing in a gospel choir or a church choir on Sunday mornings. Their choir teacher says, you know, you have a really good voice and gets them a scholarship to go somewhere whose parents might not have noticed. 
So everything is a gift and the result of circumstances. That's maybe what humility is, knowing that. Uh, I have a question. Why do you think, because um, to me, humble and, and not conceited are, are the same thing, and contented and easily satisfied are the same thing. It, it, it's, it's interesting mm -hmm. that that's in there, and I feel like there's not a lot of that within the poem. I just, I just think that's, that's intentional in some way, and I wonder what I think because, because of what Mark said, it's a poem. Mm -hmm. right. It's a poem. And in the time of the Buddha, it was uh, the, what he said was not written down, not then and not for 300 years. So people remembered things by, um, by rote. Right, right. And sometimes we chant versions of the Metta Sutta that are quite different. This particular one, Dada, humble and easily, uh, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Uh, they probably just were nice things that went along. It's like, may I feel contented and pleased. Right. Okay. They're kind of the same thing. You're right. Yeah. So I'm thinking about near enemies and with respect to humble. I know people who are, are, are thought of as very, really you know, humble and, that, and that's a, an attractive characteristic. But I know them really well and what they are is they're conflict avoiders. So, <laughs> so when, when an issue needs to be dealt with, they won't. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a really important thing. You know, again, I forgot your name. Richard. Richard, thank you. Um, one of the reasons that I'm happy to be doing this is uh, because this is all good advice, whether you need two words or one word, but it gives us an opportunity to talk it over and, and to really think about what do we notice about ourselves? Um, do I pass this off as humble? Uh, I have caught myself passing off some bad opinion of somebody in a, in a teacher meeting. How to come I just confessed to that? Uh, in, uh, on, under the guise to myself as well as everyone as having taken the high moral road, hiding from myself that the high moral road was just a way of getting back at a person who I wasn't fond of, but and not only hiding it from people but from myself. So, the humble, which is really conflict avoidant, is an important thing. I'm going to go back there and come back to you, Roberta White. What comes to mind for me with humble is Mary Oliver's famous poem Ralph Beats, where she says, Well, no, that. <laughs> Meanwhile, the wild geese are going there. No, that's great. I actually want to write that. Is it called ge humble? Wild geese. Wild geese. Roberta. Yeah, I was just going to say that I, those examples of humble uh, have to do with action, with what you do or you don't do, or you say to somebody, and. I think of it as being more what we think about ourselves in terms of, we, do we think we're better than somebody else mm. or not? And, and not conceited, mm. which those two would go together. Mm. Whether you think you are better or just as good as or whichever way you or worse yeah yeah right, or not as good as right so I, I don't think it's so much an action but of how we feel about ourselves inside yeah yeah no I think that's a very good point it has to be our last one but I love this talk and we'll do it next week as well more time but Roberta's bringing up the point of not only what you do on the outside but what you do on the inside which I think is a tremendous piece to look at and the Buddha talked about it a lot comparing yourself I'm better I'm worse I'm the same as with other people around uh, <laughs> when my grandfather was very old one day like in his late 90s he was living with me we were rolling down a uh, an uh, aisle in the supermarket together because he liked to do that and here coming towards us was another middle-aged woman with a very old man walking, doing their shopping, coming to us. So we meet each other, and, uh, you know, this is, this is my dad. She says, this is my granddad. How old's your father? 
she says, 89. I say, uh, she said, how old is your granddad? I said, he's 95. So then we pass, and my grandfather's very deaf also. So we pass by, and my grandfather says to me, in a regular voice, uh, how old was that guy? I said he was 89. And then he says in a loud voice that deaf people something. he looks much older than I do. <laughs> but it, we never finish with the comparing, you know? Never finish. Which is why I thought we'd talk about um, what does conceit mean? What does conceit mean? Anyway, may all beings be peaceful and happy, and I'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.